Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national membership association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's program manager. On our May 2021 podcast, we discussed the Biden administration's American Rescue Plan Act, or ARP, and its purpose of helping districts gain equitable access to the arts and strengthen enriching arts education experiences for students. Then in June, AmeriCorps announced how it will use the $1 billion allocated by the ARP funds, which includes both expanding the number of fellowship opportunities and increasing the amounts of stipends. The pandemic made clear that artists and culture bearers are vulnerable workers and community members with a particular perspective on what their communities need. In this podcast, we would like to elevate the voices of funders who've been leading in this area and those who've been pushing for more progressive creative worker policies. So today we are so glad to have Deborah Cullinan, CEO of Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, Gonzalo Casals, Commissioner of the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, Emil Kang, Program Director for Arts and Culture at the Andrew Mellon Foundation, and one of our board members, Randy Engstrom, who will be facilitating the conversation today. So I will kick it over to you, Randy. Thank you so much, Sherilyn. It is such a privilege uh, to be here, to be with you today. My name is Randy Engstrom. I use he, him pronouns. I hail from the anarchist jurisdiction of Seattle, Washington, the traditional territories of the Coast Salish people, the Duwamish and the Muckleshoot. And uh, I am a recovering policymaker. I am a aspiring social practice artist. I'm an adjunct faculty of arts leadership and public policy. And most importantly today, I'm a board member, a proud board member of Grantmakers in the Arts, an organization which I love very dearly. So last March, this thing happened. Uh, the coronavirus uh, took over the country and the world and artists were some of the first and hardest hit. Uh, many of them were immediately put out of work. Uh, the economic devastation was real and visceral. Uh, and at the same time, we saw from coast to coast, artists uh, stepping in and lifting up their communities, establishing mutual aid networks, uh, really being the social bond of their communities. They were how we healed and endured in many ways throughout the lockdowns and beyond. And then um, these ideas began to emerge around the role artists could play in how we recover, in how we heal, in how we reopen. And we live in a field and in a country and in a sector where individual artists have largely been um, sort of under supported going back to the 1990s publicly and, and philanthropically. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of support for individual artists. The work of individual creative workers has been a bit outside the norms of how we do workforce development and, uh, and employment safety nets. So these three human beings that are joining us today have been taking on different parts of that challenge. How do we support creative workers? How do we center artists in our communities and in our recovery? The first question that I have for our esteemed guest is, tell me about the landscape of creative worker policies of individual artist support as a matter of cultural policy from your vantage point. And uh, Deborah, I'd like to start with you. Thank you, Andy. I had a feeling you might. Uh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm here uh, in San Francisco, um, the land of the Ohlone and Ramitush people. Uh, and you know, my response to the question, what's the landscape, is that we are in what I think many of us would call a moment. Uh, there is significant and increasing understanding of the role that artists can play in not only driving recovery, but in helping us to achieve a much more equitable and healthy society. 
And there are so many examples of how this is coming together, not only in terms of um, legislative policy and bills that are moving forward, whether it's at a state level, local level, or at the federal level, but also through privately funded efforts and very local and hyper-local efforts. And so for me, the, the exciting thing is that there's a lot happening. You know, Randy, you can probably speak to the Creative Economy Revitalization Act that is authored by um, representatives Fernandez and Obernolte. And this is really a, a federal example of seeking to authorize hundreds of millions of dollars in um, recovery investment. And it really is about creative workers and it's about the role that creative workers can play in jumpstarting economies, in driving health and well-being, in rebuilding trust, social cohesion. Um, here in California, just a couple of examples. We in San Francisco are very fortunate to have piloted the San Francisco Creative Corps with Mayor Breed in our city. And this was really about in the early days of the pandemic, employing artists in order to spread health messages in context, in community, and to bring some joy and inspiration to that work. It was incredibly effective. Uh, we've also piloted a guaranteed income program also with our mayor here in San Francisco, where artists are getting $1,000, no strings attached, funding, and we're linking into efforts in New York, thank you to the Mellon Foundation, um, in St. Paul and elsewhere to really understand what the impact of this work can be. One more really exciting piece of this is a bold bill um, that ties into the California Creative Corps, which our governor, Governor Newsom, put forward $60 million for the next three years for a creative workforce program across the state. And Californians for the Arts, along with Arts for LA, have been pushing valiantly a bill called the California Creative Workforce Act. It is now on the governor's desk. We are hoping he will sign it. And it seeks to establish an arts workforce program across the state, a kind of earn and learn approach that would lead to countless jobs. So I have lots more, but I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Deborah. Um, Gonzalo, I know you're working on a pretty significant initiative there in New York City. Uh, could I invite you to speak on that? Yes, uh, and thank you. And um, it's really significant, but at the same time, if you compare it with a need, it's a drop in the bucket, right? And that's why I'm excited that um, Emil and his team are just doing similar work. But uh, to think that uh, $25 million is the largest support that the city of New York has given in four decades, in over four decades. It's crazy, right? What we, what we have been thinking about it. And as Deborah was talking, it made me realize that finally we're all talking about artists and not arts and culture, because that forces us to put the people at the center, right? The human at the center. And we start doing away with a lot of the um, commodification of the art and the object through the for-profit just leaves the artists completely out, you know, that are successful. And then, um, but it's problematic. And, you know, I raise the hand and say that I, I've been doing this, you know, for my whole career is that um, we give artists as cultural organizations, gigs, right? You're going to be uh, teaching artists for, you know, a few hours every week. You're going to be an art handler whenever we do a change and installation. The artists accept that because then they give them freedom to do their work whenever they're not working. But when the pandemic comes in, they're the first people to be let go because they have no protections. And, and that's when we start to look at, at the system in a different way. And really, is it because it's artists or is it because you know, we're not treating them with the dignity that they need as members of our society? 
That's really powerful. Thank you, Gonzalo. Emil, as a nice little shout out from Gonzalo there, and certainly uh, the Mellon Foundation is quite deserving of it. And you, the private funder on this panel, have launched quite a significant endeavor towards this uh, effort and would love to hear more about that. Thank you, Randy. I just want to say how grateful I am to join you all today as well and to my distinguished colleagues. Thanks for all their visionary work. Uh, I'm calling in from the Lenape Hoking land, and I would have to say that, you know, being relatively new to philanthropy myself, jumping into the foundation at this time has really been both uh, been humbling and, and really frightening to understand both the responsibility burden and opportunity we have as funders in particular to not just to respond to the urgent needs, which, is, which are critical, um, the urgent needs of our field and to artists, but also as a way to signal major transformational shifts in philanthropy in particular, and for us to be able to utilize the opportunity of these of this tragedies and these challenges to learn from it and actually start to uh, shift our own grant-making policies and processes and, and strategies. And so I say all of that in the context that we are thinking about all those things at once because I think that is our responsibility uh, as a funder. And I'm so excited to be able to work work with a, a visionary leader like our president of the Mellon Foundation, Elizabeth Alexander, who really did think about that as she was involved in the former governor's um, reimagined New York Commission, which led for us in many ways to think about how we were as funders but responding to the crisis of the pandemic in a way that also could set us up for thinking about differently about our support for the arts in the future. And I think I'll also just echo what Gonzalo said about differentiating between artists and arts and culture. I do think that we, we struggle and our, our society struggles with that inability to distinguish the two. It also glosses over the real limitations of the existing nonprofit industrial complex and how we actually need to think much more broadly about our sex sector. And we as funders need to think about who we support within that sector a bit more differently. And so in many ways, the, 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 our responses to the pandemic, including our support for Artist Relief, the Artist Relief Fund, for an initiative called Artists at Work, and then this initiative that we launched recently for New York State called Creative Rebuild New York are all um, centering the, the work of artists and valuing artists as workers, and also offer new models of support that both get um, funds directly to artists, but also acknowledges that, um, that artists work across uh, labor markets and that they work across in the industries and that in many ways, the focus of our funders has really been on the institutional side of things as well as the, the audience side. So um, we were really thrilled to be able to launch a $125 million initiative called Creative Rebuild New York, which puts together two, a two-pronged initiative, both in terms of artist employment and in terms of guaranteed income. And, and through this initiative, we're hoping to be able to actually provide no strings attached funding to 2,400 artists in New York State uh, over the next three years to both acknowledge uh, their work on an ongoing basis, but also just to start to uh, reimagine how we start to count artists and their work without thinking about the work that they make. And on top of that, to understand their, their role in pushing forward the creative economy. And the second part uh, of our work through artist employment is really about connecting the work of artists with the work of uh, important arts organizations that are community driven across the state of New York and allows them to be able to both shore up their employment of artists and the work of these organizations, but also to be able to give them time to pursue their creative practices. So we are taking multiple uh, approaches to this work. 
At the same time, we are trying to, make, to come up with new definitions of how we think about artists in the art sector. And at the same time, also understand that we need to do a better job of valuing artists as workers uh, across the country. Thank you so much, Emil. It sounds like what we're talking about is, is systems change, which is both about how we value artists. And I think, uh, Gonzalo, you made a really good point about the commodification of artists in the art sector. And we've gone so far into the in, uh, instrumental argument for the value of arts and culture that arts and culture create jobs and grow economies. I think what the last year has shown us is there's also a very um, instrumental value to arts and culture. The arts have been, and the work of artists has been in many ways, what has held communities together when they've been forced apart. Um, so as we think about a systems change agenda, and we think about how we support individual artists in that context, what are some of the opportunities and challenges that you've each seen from your vantage point? Uh, and maybe I'll go in reverse order. Emil, can I throw that at you first? Well, one of the things I think we've seen is um, the real limitations of existing structures of supporting artists. And I mean, we have some wonderful organizations that exist already like Creative Capital, Fractured Atlas, Map Fund, the United States Artists. These are all incredible place, places that support artists, but we know that they are undercapitalized, they're under-resourced, and the opportunities we have really are to both provide the resources to elevate their work, but also perhaps even to think about what are models that both can combine the impact of their work. Um, is there an opportunity for us to think about uh, a new national organization to future to, to scale this more sufficiently? You know, I think of organizations that have really done a good job of both delivering service and advocating, uh, and also even for those who don't participate to be able to have a broader understanding across the public like ACLU, Planned Parenthood. How do we in the arts actually establish uh, a real national scale organization that actually can do all of those things at the same time that can actually bring forth both the direct service nature of this need for artists and at the same time, help us beat the drum both in Washington and beyond. That's great, Emil. The need for that infrastructure is, is very real. Gonzalo, how do you see it from, uh, from New York City? <laughs> so I just want to add to what Emil said, right? When you look in general on how much money is spent in arts and culture, at least in New York City, which is what I know, a huge percentage of over the 90% of that is spent on presenting work, right? which adds to the idea of commodification. It's about the object on the wall, you know, and it's not about supporting artists um, to produce the work or to have the resources to be able to uh, even think about the work, right? So we are very much, and this is something that um, we funders are guilty of this. Emil and I, we can claim that we were not around back then, but uh, you know, there was a moment in which we moved from charity, which was a problem, right, into philanthropy which was basically use um, the rules of capitalism to um, apply to a philanthropy, right? Um, each grant was an investment, you know, you have to figure out, you know, what's gonna be the impact, which are a lot of things that are great about that, but um, we're forgetting what you were saying, which there are other ways to measure the impact of arts and culture. And I do wanna make a shout out for my predecessor and friend, um, Tom Filkebrell, who um, was the one that brought the uh, social impact of the arts project from Philadelphia to uh, New York and coming out of um, 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 way too many years of the Bloomberg administration and looking at arts and culture as a tool for economic development, we, we were able to prove at DCLA that um, you could count uh, and measure the uh, social impact of the arts 
And in those communities that um, there's presence of art and you don't need a med museum in every town, right? A social cohesion uh, and public safety, there are a lot of markers that go up just because of that presence. So again, as Emil said, understand what's not working already, which is what we should be doing about everything around the pandemic, and then figure out you know, how we can build something better. I love that, Gonzalo. Shout out to uh, also, in addition to Mr. Finkelpearl, who, who, de who deserves his roses for sure. Also, the uh, Solidarity Not Charity report that GIA commissioned in partnership, um, art.coop, if you haven't been there. Really, again, as Gonzalo was saying, really challenging the, um, the, the systems and the quantification of value that exists in, in our field and in every field. And really, how can we build more equitable, more just, more sustainable systems for artists and for everyone? Um, Deborah, from the YBCA vantage, what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, to build on the powerful things that have been said, um, you know, when I think about the, the notion of systems change um, and the reality that, at least in my belief, we're not here to return, we're here to push through and towards something much better. And for YBCA, we've developed a framework that really challenges um, the policies and the systems inside of a multidisciplinary performing arts, visual arts organization. And we have three, three, three different ways of thinking about this, which are all about ecosystem development, all about thinking of the whole of the artist as a human being, um, not as a commission who produces a product or an object. Um, and the three different ways we're thinking about this is YBCA Create, which is really about moving from transactional relationships with artists to transformational relationships, um, creating the conditions as an organization for artists to pursue the game-changing ideas, getting out of the way, moving aside the top-down curatorial structure and centering the artists and creating those conditions for the kind of creativity that we all know is possible. Um, and the breakthrough ideas. The second is YBCA Champion, which really encompasses all the work that we do around advocacy um, at the local, state, and federal level, but it's more than that. It's about really gathering the evidence of impact and sharing that evidence, raising awareness across sector for the role that artists can play in advancing the outcomes that we all wanna see. And so this is work around um, social impact investment, it's work, work in the public health field, it's work in education. Um, and then the third piece is YBCA Invest. And this is about what both Emil um, and um, Gonzalez have been talking about, which is really about the idea that we have to think differently about how we invest in creativity in this country. And if you look at the system in the arts and you add up all the dollars that might be exchanged between arts organizations and artists, and then you think about the fact that that system, even though it probably has significant um, wealth or resource, is destabilizing the core community. The, the artists that we work with do not have stable incomes. How can we reimagine the way in which we think about investing in creativity, investing in artists? And so I mentioned a few examples with guaranteed income and others, but it's really for me about thinking on that whole. Um, the second piece that I would say, and it kind of builds on what Emil was talking about, which is also this idea of hyper-local organizing. We have so many powerful organizers, organizers in communities across this country. And if we could find a way to create and organize a distributed system of advocacy 
um, where we're sharing the stories. We are gathering the evidence of impact. We're using that evidence to advance policy, whether it's policy in a neighborhood or a classroom or policy at the federal level. Um, but we're doing it through a distributed system that really honors the people that have been on the ground doing this work for decades without the funding. Um, yeah, so those, those are some of the things that came to mind as I listened to the conversation. That's great, Deborah. Thank you so much. And I really hear your point about the need for um, different kinds of investment strategies and different kinds of approaches. Uh, Gonzalo, in, in hearing Deborah talk about that, we know we need to think differently. What, uh, why do you think that's an important conversation for the field to be having now? And what would you tell GIA members, uh, local <laughs> arts agencies, grant makers, private family foundations, what would you tell them about why this is important and what are some ways that folks can act? I've been saying this for a long time and it's very silly, right? But uh, um, in the many cultural organizations that I work with for, which are all great and have done great stuff, um, I always tell them, right? Look around the table, who is getting paid what in this meeting about this project and who's not getting paid, right? So. The marketing person is getting paid a full salary, benefits, you know, every employee of the museum. The only person that is sitting in that meeting, spending hours talking about a project is the artist that they may pay, get paid, you know, an honorarium, which is usually um, um, minimum um, with no benefits, um, anything like that, right? And, and I think that's the best way to, um, to show, again, this sort of two-tier or second-class kind of a citizenship that we have um, in our cultural sector, right? And that's the one, the first thing that we need to change. I love and, that. And, and I was listening to, um, uh, to Deborah, it's not only that the wealth goes to the object and then the object goes to somebody else, not to the artist, is that they already kicked in, kicked in with huge debts, you know, for going to school, which these days, if you want to make it as a contemporary artist, you need to have the pedigree of you know one of these schools. If not, curators won't pay attention to you. It's almost like the system is flawed. That's a that's a really important point. Um, thank you for that, Gonzalo. Emil, what would you say to your fellow grantmakers in the GIA universe um, about why this is important and what they might be able to do? Uh, and 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 in many ways, Mellon's led by example. But what would you tell your peers? Well, I do think that um, my colleagues have said why it's important. Um, I guess I would just re reiterate the distinction between supporting artists versus the art sector. I think that we, we don't acknowledge this enough and the, the real um, embeddedness of artists feeling like they have to choose either between their art or their livelihoods um, or choosing between their activism or their art or that they have to choose between raising money through a nonprofit structure or making money, like somehow that's a bad thing. How do we actually allow artists to be who they are, to be the sort of, I mean, it sounds really silly, but I, I think we don't even realize as funders that we actually are furthering this divide in, in carving up what's convenient to us as funders, as opposed to actually acknowledging how artists work, how they've always worked to be perfectly frank, and how the system right now continues to encourage them to actually have to create infrastructures that they don't want or need that also perpetuate white-centered philanthropy. So it continues and goes on and so forth. So as funders, what are we doing? You know, instead of, there's a whole, the whole cliche of being a gate opener versus a gatekeeper. You know, what, what are we doing to actually make this, make this shift? 
And for us at Mellon, it is both um, obviously thinking about systems change work, although I think we, we are hesitant to even name that because it, that's, that's a long ways away. I think what we can do is really just show through our actions just one, one thing at a time. And for us, it is about shouldering risk, number one. I think that we've been so guilty of um, you know, watching the, the laboring artist on the side of the road struggling to make their efforts and judging them for, for struggling and feeling sorry, to be perfectly frank, for struggling. And instead, instead of doing that, what we should be doing is actually shouldering, shouldering the risk, um, lightening their loads, and then getting out of their way. I mean, it's very simple. So what that means for us is, is including, think about our grant making um, at Mellon far beyond that, the 501c3. What does it mean for artists who are actually working in collectives, in mutual aid societies, uh, in L3Cs, in uh, B Corps, S Corps, LLCs? How are we actually doing this? How are we making, using the, the, the legal structures as, um, uh, not as a, an obstacle, but as guidelines? What are we doing to actually extend our risk uh, to reimagine what due diligence means, to look at them as, um, I, I also think about this as uh, how in many cases we think of the, the idea of the control, but we don't call it that because that sounds so punitive and so paternalistic, but we use the term risk mitigation. And I think the whole notion of risk mitigation is actually trying to make the, the funder happy as opposed to actually acknowledge the impact that our work might have. So you know, really making that kind of switch to think about our, the way that we work to actually address what artists are as opposed to trying to continue to get artists to fit the buckets that we, we think of so nicely. Uh, uh, and Randy, I want to add yeah. one tiny little thing to, um, um, while we get um, um, Emil a glass of water probably, <laughs> is um, um, when we did, what we did with that, and it was intentionally for a few reasons, and then, you know, others, uh, unintended outcomes are showing up we wanted to make sure that this was a grant that was going directly to the artist. And while there was a component in which the artist had to present a, a community related or a public event, um, they had the power to decide with which organization they were going to work and what that project is going to be. And we're not gonna have the numbers probably until late October because some of the projects are happening, but it's interesting how many non-traditional arts and culture um, venues have been used by artists to engage community um, once they're given the opportunity to make the decision. That's, that's great. Thank you, Gonzalo, for adding that. And Emil, thank you for challenging all of the different ways that we could be working and thinking about supporting the creative sector and not being trapped in the binary nonprofit versus for-profit um, argument, that, that circular argument. Uh, Deborah, I'd like to turn to you uh, because YBCA has really done a lot of work in this space. What would be your advice to your peers, to your peers as presenters and producers and to your peers um, uh, in the grant makers in the arts universe? I, I feel like Emil and Gonzalo said, um, said so much that I would just want to echo. Um, but I, I think for me, I, I think we need to believe in what is possible. We need to believe that we can change the way we operate as a sector. Um, and I, I feel like that, that just understanding that together and with culture and creativity, we can imagine and realize a future that is very different than what we have today. And YBCA is one small example 
in its context in San Francisco, but it is proof that we can try things. Um, and we sometimes fail and we pick ourselves up and we keep trying. And so I feel like it's really important to create an environment where we can all take some risk, where we can all take some steps, where we can move some things over here. And if it doesn't work, move them back, where we can prototype and experiment towards something that's much better. I mean, that's really what we're doing at YBCA, which is just trying. And it will not always work but we will learn from it. So that feels really important too, as we think about how we consider um, funding and investing in, in the artists and in, in the field as we move forward. The other thing too, is it's like we get caught up in what the funding, the structures that funding or policy support and not the people and, and the, the impact that people can have in the lives of their, in their communities, in their own lives. And I feel like, when you think about it, if you invest in an artist, she will invest tenfold in her community. It's one of the best ripples of return that you could possibly imagine. And I feel like for us, we need to be singing that story loudly. I mean, even in the instance of these extraordinary gifts from people like Mackenzie Scott and others, we're learning that art, arts organizations return that money into community. And then it returns and it ripples and it returns. And we're not good at telling that story. It's probably the best investment you can make. Shout out to Mackenzie Scott. And thank you for naming experimentation because experimentation, it's come up a couple of times in this conversation. You know, we have as a field lived in a pretty risk averse uh, place. We don't want to get sued. We move policy and systems change move slowly, generally. But when we allow room to experiment, we allow different outcomes to emerge. We allow different futures and different possibilities to emerge. And a central value of grant makers in the arts is our commitment to racial equity. As you think about these new futures that are possible, as we think not just about, as Alicia Garza said, not just building back better, but building back bolder, understanding that what we had before was insufficient, undercapitalized, racially inequitable. How do we build towards cultural, economic, and racial justice what does that future look like? And how can we get more folks in that, uh, at, to that table? And Deborah, I'm gonna start with you. I think we need to acknowledge and act upon the, the truth that communities are the best builders of their own futures. And that the more that we can shift power and resource to the people who are on the ground in the context, the more that we can make the change that we want to make. Uh, and I think, it, it's also understanding that we are not, it is not a zero sum game here. We, are, we have abundant resources and what is valuable is not only money. And if we can come to understand that a healthy and more equitable future values communities and all of the assets um, that community members bring to the table, I think we can evolve forward in, in really powerful ways. Love that. Gonzalo, uh, what do you think that future could look like and how do we get more folks to join that movement? I think it's important, again, to go back to the, um, to the root of the problem, right? Uh, which is um, the stories that we're telling ourselves, uh, which in this case, the same way that we approach um, um, what we call marginal communities, communities of color, uh, we approach artists very similarly, right? You know, 
they don't know how to do their accounting, they don't know how to manage a project, you know, like, and that's not true. And when I first started DCLA um, a year and a half ago, and um, around June, when once again, America had to um, reckon with the um, social injustices of our country, I was sitting like probably, um, and they were and an Emil writing a statement. I was like, what, what else do I have to say that um, my colleagues are not going to say? And I realized that I had spent 20 years talking about um, black and brown folks. And I have not spent any time talking about white folks. And I think, you know, we need to start talking about whiteness. And we need to start talking about what, uh, what are the problems with whiteness, right? Um, reverse all these myths, all these stereotypes, and put the problem where it is, right? It's not that because the, the marginal communities are suffering the symptoms they are the ones that are, are creating the problem. Say that. Um, that is a very important point. I want to name uh, my, my friend and mentor, Roberto Bedoya, who often speaks of decentering of whiteness. Um, how do we decenter whiteness so that we can see the full spectrum of our humanity? Um, and if we can't talk about whiteness, then we can't decenter it. Uh, Emil, how do you see us building towards this more just future? And how do you think we can get more folks to the table? Oh, well, I don't know if I have the answer to that beyond what my colleagues have already said. I guess I would just add that we at Mellon do it one investment, one project at a time. Um, and that in many ways, we need to see our work in partnership always with others uh, and bring uh, come to the, these challenges with humility and uh, vulnerability uh, and transparency. And I think I say that because I know that um, Mellon as a, as a fairly large foundation hasn't always practice that, but especially since the arrival of Elizabeth Alexander as, as our president, we're really modeling that behavior, trying to understand how we can best learn and how we can best incorporate and actually be led by others. And even in our own uh, initiative, Creators Rebuild New York, that we have seeded, we have actually handed over the reins to a new institution, and it's now being run by Sarah Calderon, formerly of Art Place America, and it is now an initiative out of Tides, the Social Impact Accelerator, and where the, the team now there is running this initiative, we as a funder have to remain as sort of a student of the work there, and I think the, the lesson there for us, and I hope for all funders, is that we can come together together and learn and work in partnership together, and I'm really Happy to say that we have such great colleagues in our field uh, among philanthropy, and I've been learning so much from them. Uh, and I think the, that opportunity to do that work also means we have to make these investments. So, you know, we're, we're never going to be able to know if the risk-taking we do works in the short term, but we have to try and we have to take the risk and we have to shoulder the risk. So I think the, that adopting that attitude uh, has to come first. That's great, Emil. Uh, in a, just a moment, I'm going to invite some closing thoughts from our esteemed panel. Um, first, I just wanted to offer some things that I heard very clearly that I want to lift up from the three of you. Um, Gonzalo, I'm, I'm really going to take away from this the power of storytelling, and not just the stories that we tell, but the stories that we don't tell, and who is visible and who is not visible in that work. And I think that gets to something, uh, Deborah, that you spoke to really, really well, which is around one of the myths of scarcity in white supremacy culture is that if other people have self-determination and agency, I will somehow lose. Self-determination and agency are not pie. There is not a finite amount of human confidence or human creativity in the world, but we buy into that myth 
because of the stories that Gonzalo was just talking about, because we all believe there's only $10 and I'm going to try to get five of that. And Emil, I think as a practitioner, this idea of humility and risk tolerance is really important to, to not assume we know the answers. Deborah said that too. You know, we got, we got to understand that communities know what they need probably better than anybody. Uh, so we have to enter with humility and then we have to be willing to, to take a risk. We have to be willing to roll the dice and we have to be willing to fail uh, and, to, and to allow others to fail as well. So really, you're all brilliant. It's just a privilege to share space with you. I'd love to, if each of you wanted to share final thoughts and then we'll hand it back to uh, our friend and colleague, Sherilyn, to, to bring us home. I'll jump in. Um, just first of all, I'm, I have so much um, gratitude for this conversation uh, today and to be with all of you. I, you know, I feel like we came in and we were talking about, you know, policy and workforce policy. And the one thing I think that we all need to really try to understand and maybe make better is that all policy is cultural policy. And we isolate ourselves around what we consider to be cultural policy. And we don't consider the ways in which we are part of a whole big wide world. Um, and policies, healthcare, education policies, financial policies, these policies have not been supportive of artists and of people, you know, as we've talked about along the way, there's not equity, the systems are broken, but it's all cultural policy. And we as a field need to be integrated into the overall national conversation. I promise to give you credit every time I say all culture, all, all policy is cultural policy from now and for the next five years. To be uh, so fair, you should, you, should, <laughs> you should credit my colleague, Lauren Ruffin. Oh, the Ruffin, the Ruffin. Uh, deserves okay, all the credit for all the things. Pretty much everything smart that I say is probably coming from someone else on my team. Also, congratulations to Yerba Buena and by extension to the entire sector uh, for having the Ruffin join the YBCA family. That's a pretty exciting uh, moment. And they are truly a brilliant voice in our field. Uh, and Randy, if you're gonna quote, you know, what Deborah just said, I'm gonna add one more thing that, that policy is not only the product by the process and who is involved in the process is what really makes the policy work or not. But what I wanted to say um, as a final thought and, you know, I'm being a little uh, pessimistic these days is I, I was talking to a group of uh, young museum workers that wanted to create change and I had to point out to them that the change they wanted to create wasn't necessarily specific to museums, but what specific to society, right? And how, when we wanna create change in our sector, it's good to go and look at what's happening in society and the other way around. Like I said before, a lot of these problems that we have is because um, capitalism continues to survive and I was reading this book that starts by saying, it's so much easier for us these days to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Speaking of stories that we believe in, we don't believe, right? And, and we need to start thinking about that, right? How, um, if we're gonna change systems, um, that there are other systems that could be created. That's amazing. Thank you, Gonzalo. That is the second time I've heard that I can imagine the end of the world before I could imagine an end of capitalism. And that is a powerful, powerful, um, idea. Emil, you want to bring us home? Um, what I'm going to say is not necessarily trying to bring us home, but I, I was, what I will <laughs> say, though, um, simply is that as we think about policy change, and I'm all for that, we can't remember the uh, abil incredible ability each of us has to, to act and to change and to make change, and that we shouldn't be waiting for others 
to make that change, whether it's policymakers or anyone else. And that we actually need to continue to figure out ways to quantify the work that we know that our individual artist workers contribute to our society, and that we actually are in, still continue to be in need of that data, of that, of that knowledge, of the research that actually quantifies artists and their work, um, as opposed to quantifies the value of the institutions to artists. And so I guess end with this by saying that um, uh, I hope we can actually do, still do more to not only think about uh, how others will help us, but how we can actually help, help ourselves. I love that. Uh, in the words of Claudia Jones, made the revolution be irresistible. Um, Sherilyn Seeley, thank you for having us today. Would you like to close us out? I would. Thank you so much, Randy, for facilitating this conversation. And thank you, Deborah, Emil, and Gonzalo for sharing such powerful ideas and for joining us today. It was so great to hear from all of you, and I am completely inspired by this conversation. And to our listeners, we look forward to continuing these conversations, so be sure to tune into other episodes of the GIA podcast series, and be sure to follow us on Facebook at GI Arts, Twitter at GI Arts, and Instagram at Grantmakers in the Arts. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seeley at Sherilyn at GIArts.org, and thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.